doubt is not the opposite of faith. So knowing that, how do we doubt well? Today, my guest is Elisa Childers. We're talking about the difference between doubt and deconstruction and how doubting well can actually help you to grow your faith. That's today on The Truth and Our Trauma. Ever sit down to pray and end up thinking about what you need to buy at the store instead? No judgment. I've totally been there. And that's why I decided to create the Ignite Strategic Prayer Planner and Journal. Know what to pray, track your impact, and learn to hear God's voice for yourself. Ignite is more than just a journal. It's a journey. And it's available now on Amazon and at the link in the show notes. So I don't know about you, but the way that I came up in church, if you had doubts, it was sort of seen as you not being a good Christian, that you just didn't have enough faith. And yet, as I came to discover going through a difficult time and having doubts and wrestling with those doubts is actually how our faith can become a whole lot stronger. Sometimes when we're going through a tough time, that's when all the shaky parts of our foundation get exposed. And yet, when that happens, we don't always know what to do. And this can be further complicated if you have any sort of spiritual abuse in your background. If this is something that you've had to encounter, it makes it far more difficult to look at what you have been taught and sort out what is from man and what is from God and really to know then where does truth lie. To help us with all of this, my guest today is Elisa Childers, and she is here to talk with us about the difference between doubt and deconstruction. A lot of times these things are thought of as the same thing, and really and truly they have different aims and different end goals. And so when we understand actually the difference between these two, we have the ability then to embark on a process that actually is going to lead us to where we want to end up. Elisa, it's really wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks. Elisa, I wanted to talk with you about deconstruction. That's what the subject of your new book is all about. But this is a word that's not often so clearly understood, that often there can even be maybe the sense that there's good deconstruction or bad deconstruction. But really, there is a specific concept that this is supposed to convey to those, especially who have established its usage. So I wanted to know if you would start us out with that understanding really of What is meant by that word deconstruction? Yeah, there's so much talk about this word deconstruction. And in our research for the book, what we discovered is that people are using it in a variety of ways. I mean, they are defining it to mean everything from maybe just questioning something you were taught as a kid, all the way to like completely leaving the faith and becoming an atheist. So there's there's this spectrum in between of just these ways that people are defining the word. And so at first, when we were researching, we thought, well, maybe we can kind of talk about it in two different ways. Like maybe there's kind of like a healthy version of deconstruction, and then there's an unhealthy version. And granted, a lot of people do that. A lot of people, especially in evangelical spaces, talk about it that way. But we actually decided not to do that. And the reason for that is because the word deconstruction has a very specific meaning meaning in the broader culture. And it's connected. It's, a, it's actually a postmodern word. 
So in the context of faith, in the context that people are using it, it's really connected to postmodern philosophy that really gained steam in the 60s, which, you know, not to get technical or anything, but it just it's largely marked by a rejection of the idea that objective, absolute truth could be known when it comes to religion and morality, like things like what we should and shouldn't do. And so because of those two things, we thought, well, I think we need to let the word be what it is, which in broader culture really does mean kind of walking away from core historic Christian doctrines. Um, now, that doesn't mean that everybody who says they're deconstructing means that, you know, we, we acknowledge that. But our definition, like our official definition is it's a postmodern process of rethinking your faith while not regarding scripture as a standard. Because that's pretty much what we what we observed, especially in the deconstruction hashtag. Uh, in fact, in many of the deconstruction spaces online, they'll tell you, you know, if you still have the Bible as your authority, or if you have an authority outside of yourself, you haven't done it right. You have to, you have to deconstruct that. And so, um, it, I think that how it's expressed in culture and connected to its postmodern roots, it's not a healthy thing. But that doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't ask hard questions or engage doubts or, you know, stand against injustices or things like that. So we would encourage Christians to do all those things, but just use a better word like reformation or discernment or something like that. I think this is so important to understand their roots and to have a definition of what it is that we're talking about, because ultimately it points us towards what is the aim. So that when we understand that postmodernism is actually wanting to tear down these structures, that there is no absolute truth, as you've said, then we, if we don't want that to be our end goal, that our faith has been completely dismantled, then this is not a phrase or a term or a process even that we want to engage in. That if ultimately what we want to see is the truth sifted out from the things that maybe we've been believing that are not the truth and pulling those things apart so that at the end we have the purest form of what it is that we're after, that ultimately that starts them with knowing what is this thing? What is my experience? And where am I going with this? And realizing that truly though, that postmodern movement is the antithesis of the growth of our faith. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of people think of the word, you know, just on a almost just if you take it literally, it's like deconstruct, right? You just take something apart, examine all the pieces, make sure everything's in the right place and put it back together. But that's really and that's good. I would say do that, you know, definitely do that. But that's not what people mean in the deconstruction space. And they might mean something like that, but it's not based on truth. It's not based on, uh, you know, if you think of it like a house, you know, if you if you tear down all the walls of the house and try to just throw it back together based on, you know, a whim, like maybe I like a, a circle shaped house or something, you know, and it's not going to be structurally sound. So we have to base it on truth and what is true about reality and um, engage in a process of, yeah, I mean, engage your doubts. Don't push those down. No matter what people have been through, I mean, confront what's wrong about that. You know, there's been a lot of spiritual abuse in the background of deconstruction stories. And what I would love to see happen is people, instead of Instead of getting rid of the whole thing or or core doctrines of the whole thing, I mean, confront the injustice because God is God is justice. God is just, and He hates that too, and He's on your side. You know, so we don't need to tear the whole thing down. We need to tear the the wrong and unjust and and untruthful parts down. In the book, you highlight the fact though that this is also a core of spiritual warfare. This battle between truth and lies that often we think of of spiritual warfare as power encounters. And in the book, you describe that actually it's more of truth encounters, that it is this 
way that the enemy is using, yes, harm and injustice and hurtful experiences in the church to try to confuse us so that we just throw the entire thing out, that we get so disheartened and discouraged by not being able to really feel like we can grab the truth that we sort of just toss it all out together. Would you talk about this idea of spiritual warfare as truth encounters and also where we see this biblically? Yeah. So depending on what stream of Christianity you grew up in, spiritual warfare is going to mean something, you know, a little bit different. Um, But when, and one thing I want to be very clear about, when we say it's not primarily power, power encounters, we're not denying the reality of the supernatural, right? We know we have a very real enemy and angels and demons are real. These, these are, you know, powers and principalities. But when the Bible talks about how we fight them, it doesn't primarily use language like, you know, I think we kind of have this image in our minds of like, you know, wizards at Hogwarts or something. And it's like, that's really not what the Bible is talking about. It really has to do with a battle of ideas. So when you when you think about the the verses everybody pulls out for spiritual warfare, um, you know, they're mighty, our, our weapons are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, destroying arguments, demolishing arguments, and um, taking captive every thought that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ. These are all words that have to do with ideas in our heads, in our minds, what we're believing, lies versus truth. And so I think that one of the the points we were trying to make in the book is, um, you know, there's a lot of warfare language in the Bible. And I think the reason we brought that in is because um, in in the book, we talk about how there was this kind of viral clip of John Cooper, who's the lead singer of the band Skillet, at the Winter Jam Festival a couple of years ago saying, you know, we, it's time to declare war on the Christian deconstruction movement. And a lot of people realized, I think at that point, they were defining it in different ways because people were like, why would you go to war against, you know, making sure what you believe is true? That did, Well, of course, that would be silly if that's what the definition of deconstruction was. Um, but then people were like, you know, I'm so tired of the warfare language. I don't want to talk about warfare. But I mean, you can't read the Bible and avoid a lot of warfare language. But what we're trying to help people understand and kind of parse out is that when the Bible talks about warfare, it's spiritual warfare. It it has to do with a battle against bad ideas because bad ideas hold people captive. Bad ideas can ruin people's lives. Bad ideas can lead people away from the Lord and into very destructive even habits and patterns. So yeah, we want to go to war against bad ideas for the sake of the people we're fighting for, not with, if that makes sense. So um, we wanted to kind of bring a little clarity to that kind of conversation, because when a Christian says something like, we got a war against, you know, deconstruction, we're not saying that we're at war with people who are deconstructing. We're at war with the powers and the principalities and the lies that are trying to lead them away from something that's true, something that would actually give them true, deep, abiding peace and life and joy. And that's that robbing of life even that we see in the garden at that first place that this even came up, this battle between truth and lies was in the garden where the snake tempts Eve and he's confusing her. And that's really where a lot of us find ourselves as we're going through these difficult circumstances is I'm confused. And the enemy would love nothing more, even in the example that you gave, where we start fighting with one another, when the whole point is that he is the one who's sort of this puppet master behind the smoke screen, you know, trying to just throw, he just throws out all kinds of things. He doesn't even really necessarily have to have 
so much power as he has the ability to just create chaos. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of us then feeling that chaos, it's, it's where can we stand then? What's our bedrock? And if he can just give us enough confusion about who God is, who we are, that we just decide that it's not worth it or that we are fighting against each other, that ultimately he can divide and conquer. And that's his whole MO, really. And that's that's why the warfare and abuse are they go so hand in hand, especially in the church, where if we fall for those tricks, if we fall for that distraction, individuals are lost, but then the integrity of the body of Christ is sullied. Mm. And it's just yeah. something that he wants to to just again it's it's very suggestive that it doesn't even necessarily have to be as you said that that there's all that much power and might and and everything that we know about fighting in spiritual warfare is who we're lining up with it is not because i have so much more power over the principalities right. it's that i put all my faith and all my eggs in the basket yes. of the one who does right that's right and so yes. if i can so all he needs to do though is undermine my ability to believe in the one who holds all authority that's mm. all he has to do mm-hmm. and then at the end of the day that's all he that's literally all he has to do to win mm. wow those are some great points you just made there that's, that's good stuff <laughs> Well, it's it's one of those things, though, that de- depending on our experiences, it is easier for some of us than others to be able to sift out the difference between what were yeah. the teaching of, teachings of man mm-hmm. and what are the teachings of God? What are What's the word of God versus the way it's been manipulated by a person? And the longer that you have to unravel or the more that the just you press in and, and the revelation comes, the more that you have the ability to see the truth and it becomes truer to us in these really dark times but mm-hmm. we have to recognize that we do have an enemy it's yeah. not the other person you know on the other side like right. you're saying but we do have an enemy who would love nothing more than, than to see our eternity destroyed and so yeah. when we have the ability to sift those pieces apart then yeah. we can start to rebuild something the, that stands that's the hardest thing i think when you listen to so many deconstruction stories what starts to emerge is this Um, you know, there's no two identical deconstruction stories. Every story is unique because each person is unique and their experiences are unique. But one of the themes you see in a lot of the deconstruction stories will be like um, maybe hypocrisy or spiritual abuse. And then what happens is it's like, okay, the man who taught me that I'm a sinner and I need a savior is the same one that abused me and that, you know, in whatever way, And so then that becomes tied together and you think, well, that's what abusers try to tell you. There's something wrong with you. So you'll depend on them. So that must not be true because that couldn't be what God would do. But really what that is, is a misunderstanding of what that teaching is. And um, whereas, you know, biblically, we, we should stand against abuse, but also recognize that we are sinners. But if somebody used that doctrine to abuse you or to, to gain power over you, then that's an abuse of a good doctrine, not that the doctrine itself is abusive. And that's, I think what you mentioned, like trying to untangle these things, it can be incredibly difficult when there's been that in the background, I think. Yeah, and I think what starts to really turn the tide on this though is recognizing that there is a truth that can be known, that that's what the word yes. of God is for us to do, to to have is to bathe our minds in that, that then when we see something that doesn't line up with scripture, we are empowered to say that's wickedness. And that's really where the enemy starts to lose his power is when he's caught. When we start to be able to call him out and say like, wait a minute, that's not actually God. That's Mm -hmm. Satan. That is Satan running a church. 
That is what the wicked, mm. what how the wicked would use this doctrine to manipulate and to gain power and all that sort of thing. And so once you have the ability to expose the darkness and call it out, then the game starts to change. But as long as we distrust the word of God, we can't use it as an objective standard, we're afraid to read it because we don't think we can understand it, then we are at the whim then of other people, their mm. interpretations, their teachings, whether they're right or wrong. That's good. Yeah. Okay, this one is for all my overthinkers out there. I used to be absolutely debilitated by intrusive thoughts. Everything from constant worry to just dread of the future, I couldn't make it stop. If you're there right now, I have developed a free downloadable guide to help you get your mind back. It's called Overthinking, Get Out of Your Head and On With Your Life. And you can download it for free right now at UncommonValor.co. As far as, though, this moment of crisis, it does reveal to us when we have a faith that is shaky. It does reveal whether we have an, an immature belief or whether we have an incorrect belief. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It does lead us into these stages of questioning, but it can be incredibly disorienting and it's very frightening, especially if you are in a denomination or even maybe even a cult type situation where now you are walking away from what has maybe been told to you as the source of your salvation. And in this process though, you mentioned in the book how we can look at figures like Nicodemus and the Pharisees, and we can see the process of questioning played out, though, in these two different ways that reveal where the orientation towards truth really lies in our questioning. Can you talk more about how those sorts of scenarios can give us the idea of what is good questioning and maybe mm. what is not necessarily towards the aim of trying to determine what the truth is? Right, because a lot of times in deconstruction spaces, you'll hear, we're just asking questions. And, you know, that can be a slippery phrase because it all depends on the questioner and what, why they're asking the question. Um, so if you think about Nicodemus versus the other Pharisees, very often when Pharisees ask Jesus questions, I mean, the Bible will outright say they were trying, you know, to trap him or they were, you know, they were always trying to poke holes in what he was doing. They weren't asking honest questions questions. They were just trying to trick him. They were trying to trap him. And yet Nicodemus, you know, comes to Jesus by night. He's asking these really sincere, honest questions. And this is where we get, you know, the Bible verse that virtually everybody's memorized, which is John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. I mean, that's that happened in the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was asking very sincere questions. And um, and so there's a difference. There's no such thing as just asking questions. There's how you ask the questions. And we have a whole chapter on, on questions, actually, which um, I think a lot of people have said who have read the book that that chapter was very helpful for them because there are a lot of times in the deconstruction spaces where they'll, they'll say things like, well, I had all these questions and nobody could answer my questions, so I'm leaving the faith. And it's very, that, that's a fascinating thing to say to me, be, for me, because if you think about every question that is asked about just anything about the reliability of the Bible or uh, the reality of God's existence or science and faith or any of these things, I mean, people have been discussing these questions for 2000 years. And so there's not like there's really a new question anyone's going to ask. And yet you have millions of people, maybe billions over the course of the last 2000 years who believe. And so I don't think it's necessarily primarily and only an intellectual 
problem. So what we talk about in that chapter is that often maybe there wasn't an answer. Maybe someone went to a type of church that said, we don't ask ask those questions around here. Just have faith. Just read your Bible. Well, why should I believe the Bible is true? Because the Bible says so no more, you know, and, and that that's a tragedy if if that is the scenario somebody grew up in. So there may be genuine cases where that's that's true, but then there's there's also cases where, and I've experienced this personally with people in my life who have deconstructed, where a question will be asked and you'll discuss an answer and then they just kind of reframe the question and ask it again and, and you'll sort of try to make the answer more clear or show more evidence or something. And, and it's like, they're never satisfied with the answer. And that can be also because some answers are not available, like in that first scenario, but some answers are not acceptable. And I think that's an important thing to bear in mind for for people who kind of already want out, they're not going to find any answer to be acceptable. Like, for example, um, we see a lot of deconstruction over biblical morality as it would relate to sexuality. Um, And a lot of times people just don't want to or can't accept God's design for sex and marriage. And so they're they're trying to figure out a way to either make Christianity work with a different ethic, or they're trying to find a reason to discount the whole thing. And so that answer is just not going to be acceptable to them, that this is what God created men and women for, and this is what marriage is and all of that. And so there can be, you know, unavailable, there can be unacceptable answers. And so it all depends on the motive of the question. And that's why I think it's so important that even all of us, we search our own hearts and think, well, why am I asking this question? Am I asking this question because I'm seeking justification for the unbelief that's already there? Or am I really seeking truth? Am I willing to submit myself to what's true, even if I don't like it, even if it's hard to believe, even if it just goes against everything in me? But if it's if it's true, am I willing to say that. And so my friend Frank Turk does this when he he does a lot of these kind of almost hostile Q&As on secular college campuses. And so he's, you know, every once in a while, an atheist group will come and they'll try to do gotcha questions on the mic. And um, when there's somebody that's kind of antagonistic like that, he'll ask them, if before I answer the question, he said, let me ask you a question. If Christianity was true, would you become a Christian? And more often than not, they'll say no. Which is stunning to me because you're thinking, okay, but don't you want to know, you know, don't you want truth, right? So I think that reveals a motive. And then Frank will tell them, if if Christianity were true and you would still not become a Christian, then you don't have a head problem. You have a heart problem. And so I think some diagnosis of those questions is important. For example, here's another example. And I'm, I'm, this is a long answer, so I'll wrap it up after this. But when you when you think about maybe an objection against the truthfulness of Christianity. Listen to what's behind the question. So somebody might say, hey, I heard that the the, man, the copies of the manuscripts of the New Testament have been corrupted. Is that true? Like, what evidence do we have to know that we have an accurate copy of what they originally wrote? Now, on its face, that seems like a, like a pretty reasonable and honest question. But somebody might frame that question in, in a different way and say something like, well, I just can't believe that we could have an accurate copy of something that was written 2,000 years ago. Well, you've already sort of imported your presupposition into the question. Or I just can't believe in a God who would, and then fill in the blank. Well, you've already decided what it is. And so we have to look at our intentions in asking the questions. You know, if God did do X, Y, and Z, and that is really true about him, what am I going to do with that? That's an honest question. But to say, well, I can't believe in God 
as he's written, as he's written down. And this is very, uh, listen, in the deconstruction space, people will outright admit this. Um, the late Rachel Held Evans in her book, she basically said she appealed to postmodernism and postmodern philosopher Jacques Derrida. And she said, why? She said, because I refuse to believe in a God that would command the, the Canaanite conquest. So she'd already decided that she couldn't believe in a God who would do that. So she had to bring in postmodernism to make it work for her. And that's, I mean, at that point, why bother? You're just sort of creating things in your own image at that point. Yeah, then we're building a faith that's not the faith as it is and and wanting to keep what we feel like the better parts or the parts that are acceptable to us while discarding the stuff that makes us feel uncomfortable. And I right. think what you pointed to, though, is the the humbling that this process is. We come to this often by some kind of heartache and some kind of pain, and we're scared. There is a fear of, as I start to unpack all of this baggage, what is in here and what am I really going to find out? You know, uh, many of us even come already with this fear of who God is and is he a big police officer in the sky? And right. and we're, we're even more fearful as we start to dig of what we're going to find. And so there's, I see often this self-protectiveness of not then wanting my mind to be changed or not wanting to allow myself to actually be transformed by the truth. But the truth is transformative. That's its entire purpose is to take us from where we are and to bring us to the next level. It's to take us from glory to glory. That's who Jesus as the embodiment of truth is. And so for us to engage this process is to be willing to be transformed by the truth. And that means we can't transform the truth. We can't change it. It changes us. But all the while knowing The truth is not even just this intellectual objective sort of standard as much as this is a person. This is a relationship that we're starting to enter into, that it is, Jesus, tell me who you are. Tell me how you see these things. Tell me how you see myself. And if we are willing to engage that, it takes courage. But if we're willing to engage that, we are so stunningly surprised by Mm. how kind and gentle that the truth can be, though it can also be brutal, right? It's like these two, it's it's these two things that seem like they are opposite and only in the Lord can they be one. Yeah. And he just journeys us down this road of, of holding these two things side by side. Yeah. And I would say, I would really encourage our listeners to think about also, you know, we get to know God in, in the Bible. This is where he's revealed himself to us. And so often people are getting their information about God from little bits and pieces that somebody might just pull and then write an article about or, uh, and and this is why this might be surprising to people. I don't know. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But when I learned that people thought that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament, that actually really stunned me. Um, Because I've I've read the Bible my whole life. I had read almost the whole Bible by the time I was 12. And I've studied it my whole life. And until I really learned that that was something people say, I, I was utterly shocked because because I've engaged with the Bible as a whole so much, I see the kindness of God in the Old Testament, the the long suffering, his merciful nature, holding his judgment for 450 years um, before the Canaanite conquest, sending prophets to these nations saying, repent, please turn back, stop doing all of these horrific deeds that are that are going on and um, and giving them so much time to repent. Um, just you see his his mercy with David. You see his mercy all over with Abraham. And then you see sever- the severity of Jesus in the New Testament. You see, uh, you know, Jesus flipping tables, calling people names and um, 
you know, returning with blood on his robe to kill his enemies with the breath of his mouth. I mean, you you see the consistent character of God all the way through. And you're right. He is justice and judgment because he is love. And so you, I think I would just encourage people to, it can be so tempting if you have a question like, oh gosh, I read about the Canaanite conquest and then go read a bunch of articles about it. Read the whole thing and, and get God's character in context. And it, I guarantee you it will make a lot more sense to you that way. Um, but, but sadly, I think people are getting so much of their theology from 20 second TikTok videos. And, and that's just a tragedy. Yeah. And I think one of the things, as you said, reading the entirety of scripture, though, does give us that complete picture. And we have broken it into these like two testaments, right? But ultimately, it's all God's story. He is the same God all throughout. And so for us to start to bathe ourselves in scripture, we start to even see our own stories in these stories. We see ourselves in the Psalms. We can see ourselves in Exodus. We can see ourselves in Isaiah. We can see ourselves even in these Old Testament places. And and we can see ourselves as the body of believers as similar to what the the Israelites had gone through where they're over here and they're over there and they're obeying and they're not. And, you know, it's like that's, yeah. that is that is that is people. <laughs> and that is who yeah. we are, even as a church. And the compassion then that we can have for ourselves as the body as we're all bumbling through this process. Mm. That yes, if we're yeah. bumbling towards the Lord together. <laughs> that yeah. that's and really we're not the, the heroes point. of the Old Testament stories, you know, like we're not no. we're not David with the five stones. We're the scared Israelites that don't want right. to face the giant, right? <laughs> that's right. Elisa, for someone, as you mentioned, you, though, like there are some real abuses and some real harm. There's some real spaces where the church has missed it when it's come to, to helping people question well and to to doubt well, as you say in the book. Being that reforming our faith is the aim, really, of our questioning, that if we're doing this in a way that is going to lead us down the path to life, that reforming our faith is what we're after. What is something that you could tell someone who's listening about how they can doubt well? Mm. Well, I think, you know, sort of, to reference a previous answer I gave, because I'll probably build on it, is first of all, I think people need to understand that doubt and faith are not opposites. These are not, you know, uh, antonyms. So doubt and faith actually work together because you don't doubt something unless you, you know, you believe something and then, oh, should I believe that? Is that actually true? And you have a little bit of doubt. And that's, I think, a part of becoming a mature Christian. Um, But you know, people parse it out different ways. They'll say there's intellectual doubt, there's moral doubt, there's, uh, you know, my friend Hillary Ferrer from Mama Bear Apologetics, we, we've we sort of named it nap doubt, where like, you can be like physical doubt, where your body's just tired. You know, everything seems terrible when you haven't slept in a couple of days. And, you know, so there can be like napped out. <laughs> but I think, you know, it, over in the overarching scheme of things, there's really just two kinds of doubt. There's honest doubt where you're like, gosh, is this really true? I need to know. I need to get to the bottom of this. That's honest doubt. And then there's doubt seeking justification for the unbelief that's already there. And I think that's really it. It's those two kinds. And I would just do some really, you know, self analysis and figure out which one it is for you. Because if you're seeking justification for unbelief that's already there, you're going to find it. You will make it. You will create it. You know, you don't you don't you might as well just just be out because you can twist it up to do whatever you want with it. But if you're honestly seeking the truth, I do believe that it will lead you to the truth of 
the Christian worldview because it's, it's, I mean, even, even if you weren't 100% sure, like take certainty totally out of the equation, there is no worldview that expl- it has an answer um, as meaningful and as satisfying as Christianity for all the big worldview questions. Where did we come from? What are we? What's the meaning of life? Where are we going? What's wrong with the world? How does that get fixed? What happens when we die? I mean, all of these questions, and it's so supported by evidence just in reality. Um, so I think I think that we need to understand that faith and doubt are not opposites. The opposite of faith is actually unbelief. That's what the Bible talks about in Romans 1 when Paul lays out basically where every false idea, ideological system came from. Um, it's a very fascinating chapter, actually. If you've never read it, go read it. And he talks about how the wrath of God is being revealed against people because nobody has an excuse, according to Romans 1. And the reason for that is because Paul tells us that we can actually have access to knowledge about God's existence and even know things about his divine attributes just by looking out into creation. So even if we never got a Bible, we are all without excuse as far as, you know, because it's written on our hearts, we we have that knowledge inside of us. And what happens, Paul says, is people started worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And and we see that this is why we're we're not without excuse. So we have access to this information. So that's why if you read a little further down, it, it talks about unbelief is really the sin. Unbelief is the sin because it's a rejection of something you know is actually true. But doubt is not a sin. Doubt is saying, you know, if it's honest doubt, I mean, read I, read all throughout the scriptures the way God and in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New handles people who doubt. It's with tenderness. He offers evidence. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't say, well, you should just believe or we don't ask those questions around here. He engages in that relationally with people. And so we shouldn't be afraid of doubt, but we want to make sure we're doubting honestly. We want to make sure that our doubts are not rooted in any sort of like a presupposition that we already want it to not be true. So we're going to just look for a reason for that. And that tenderness is still available to us through the Holy Spirit. Yes. Because if you are not doubting, honestly, he'll tell you. <laughs> if yeah. you ask him, <laughs> if I'm not sure which one this is, he will tell you. He won't let you get too far if you're staying yeah. tethered to him. <laughs> That's right. Alisa, I am so appreciative for your insight and just your your compassion for this process of doubting and how it can help us to grow in our faith. Would you tell listeners about the book and how they can follow you? Yeah, so boy, this book um, is a long time coming. I wrote it with uh, Tim Barnett, who has a YouTube channel called Red Red Pen Logic. He's also, I think, on TikTok and Facebook and all the places. But uh, it's called The Deconstruction of Christianity, what it is, why it's destructive, and how to respond. And so we're making the case for our definition that, you know, if, if you're going through a process where you're questioning deeply, you're doubting, you're busting things down to the studs and rebuilding, we say, good, do that, just call it something else. <laughs> That's kind of our main thesis. Let's call that reformation um, because deconstruction is this whole other thing that is just not healthy. Um, and that's available anywhere books are sold. You can actually pre-order. I'll tell your your audience about the pre-order because this is kind of exciting. Um, one of the, the biggest questions I get everywhere I go when I speak is how do I engage with people in my life who are deconstructing? And by the way, that's who our audience for the book is. This is not the book you're going to give to the person who's deconstructing. We didn't write it to them or for them. We wrote it with compassion for them, but it's not actually, that's not our audience. There are other great books that you can give to somebody who's deconstructing. This is for their 
families. This is for their parents, their spouses, their kids, their pastors. This is for the body of Christ who's observing deconstruction from the outside and they're trying to understand what it is and they want to know how to engage with the people they love who are in deconstruction. So we have a whole chapter called Advice. And we walk through different scenarios and possibilities, kind of hypotheticals of different relationships and how that might look. And honestly, I think it's probably the most practical and valuable chapter in the whole book because that answers that how question that so many people are asking. And so with the pre-order, you can pre-order the book anywhere. And then go to the deconstruction of Christianity.com. It's long, but you can remember it because it's the book title, the deconstruction of Christianity.com. And you can scroll down and there's a little form you can fill out and you put in your receipt number of wherever you bought the book, fill out the form. And then immediately, even like right now, you will get an email with that chapter for free and, and early. So you get that early. And then you'll also, when the book comes out, get access to the audiobook for free for 60 days. So that's a pretty sweet deal. And Tim and I read the audiobook, and I always love when authors read their own books. So I always try to do that. And so again, just order it anywhere and then go to the deconstruction of Christianity.com. And then how they can connect with me, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, Adelisa Childers, YouTube.com, Adelisa Childers. And then I have the Elisa Childers podcast. And I will include all the links in the show notes so nobody has to remember. <laughs> so awesome. they can just go right in there and click it and find you. But again, thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for being with me for this episode today. I hope you'll come back again. And in the meantime, you can follow me over on social media and find out about our resources and services over at UncommonValor.co.